Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Hackers, episode 25. I'm Gemma Evans. I'm a journalist and presenter here in the UK. And this is my series devoted to getting inside the minds of some of the most pioneering figures in health and wellness. My guest today is a leading authority when it comes to physical activity. Professor Greg White, OBE, is a sports scientist. He's a two-time Olympian. He's a coach, he's an author, he's a trainer to celebrities, and he consults with some of the most high-profile professional athletes. He's also the co-founder of the Center for Health and Human Performance in London, and he's with us for the next 30 minutes to talk all things human performance and achieving the impossible. Greg, welcome. That is some intro. (laughs) You're one of these guests who's done so much that it's almost impossible to know where to start. But I mentioned there your work with celebrities. If you could give us a quick rundown, a bit of a list of some of those stars who you've worked with and some of the monumental challenges that you've helped them conquer. Yeah, the list is long. It's about 30 big challenges, Uh, mostly celebrity-based, mostly charity-based. Um, but they include the likes of David Williams, author, comedian, uh, Davina McCall. What did you do with so, David Williams? So with David, we start, the first thing we did, we swam the English Channel, uh, the blue ribbon of open water events, the toughest open water swim on the planet. Uh, and then we've actually done a few now. So we did the million, pot, uh, million pound cycle from John O'Groats to Land's End, which is a, a thousand mile cycle uh, in a team of celebrities. Uh, and we then swam the length of the Thames, or 140 miles of it, which was pretty brutal. Uh, <laughs> and then what, um, so with Davina, you were cycling for some of the Ultra triathlon, yeah. yeah. From Edinburgh down to London, so it's about a 520 mile ultra triathlon, including a swim across uh, Lake Windermere in February. Not pleasant. Uh, and then John Bishop, we went from Arc to Arch, so the Arc de Triomphe to Marble Arch. Which included cycling, bike, yeah. uh, cycling to Calais, then rowing across the English Channel, and then running 90 miles from uh, from Dover into London. Um, there was Eddie Izzard as well. Eddie Izzard, 43 marathons in 51 days, which was truly wow. outstanding. Um, uh, who else? Gary Barlow. Yeah, so the whole team: Gary Barlow and, and Cheryl Cole et al. Up to Kilimanjaro. That was actually t- almost 10 years ago now, um, and that was a, that was a fantastic event because we actually raised over three and a half million pounds on that particular event alone. Superb. And you train them to achieve those goals. So right right from day one, yeah. when they were starting from scratch. Yeah. Uh, out of interest, who, if you had to name a celebrity that impressed <laughs> you the most, whether it was their steely determination or their physical talent, yeah. who would it be? It tends to be the solo guys. So the likes of Eddie Izzard, John Bishop, Davina McCall, Greg James, who's a radio presenter. Um, but it's probably David Williams. Really? Uh, Why? Just because the, the open water, cold open water swimming is the nadir of misery. <laughs> uh, and there is nothing tougher, nothing more invigorating, nothing more exciting in my opinion. It's the one thing I love to do. But without any shadow of doubt, it is by far the toughest thing you'll ever do. And you love all this because you are a sportsman and you, you used to be a sportsman. You've always been one, really. You were in the Olympics twice. What would you say are some of your most proud achievements? I, do know, I guess the proudest achievement was I won silver medal at the World Championships in 1994. Um, and it, was, it actually wasn't about the performance per se. It was great to, to be on the rostrum. Um, it was because my dad got to watch. Uh, really? and, and my mum and dad were instrumental in my success, uh, particularly as a sportsman, but actually just in life in general. And it was rare on the international stage to have family watch. Um, but on that particular occasion, my dad was there. And that how were really they special. so integral to your success? 
I mean, parents are everything. <laughs> and I think to some extent, I mean, I, I, I talk an awful lot about team. And I think having a team around you is crucial if you're going to achieve something incredible. Um, and I think the integral to that, um, particularly at a young age, are parents. Parents are everything. You know, I deal with some of the best athletes on the planet. Um, from juniors through to seniors uh, and what you see is that, that junior athletes we t- often talk about this idea of whether athletes are born or made uh, and of course the answer to that is both is that they're born with, with, with the material with the engine with the genes um, but actually it has to be developed and part of that development what actually underpins that development is the support of the family in order to make it a reality because as it was for me, my dad had to get up at half past five in the morning to take me swim training. Uh, my mum had to be there when I got home to make sure that I had the right breakfast at the right time. Uh, she had to, we have to clean kit. You have to transport every single weekend to, to competitions. You know, I mean, it, it, parents are everything to a junior athlete. Do you think that's how you learn to have the mentality of an athlete? Yeah, I think, and that, that's something. I think people often say to me, you know, are, are people born with that attitude? And I think just that there, there, is, there is an inheritability to, to how we think, but actually a lot of it is developed. Uh, and I think that a lot of it is developed both through personal experience, but also through the mentors that we gather in life, that team, again, who can actually teach us an awful lot as we go through. The title of one of your books is Achieve the Impossible. It's all about overcoming obstacles. Mm. Do you believe that anybody can achieve the impossible? Yes, is the answer to that. So anybody who's never run a mile, never swum, in fact, someone who's not even learned to swim, could they do a David Williams challenge eventually with the help of your training? Yeah. Yes, right. is the answer to that. I mean, obviously there are some things. I had a very interesting conversation once with a mentor of mine. He said to me, Greg, I love the book. He said, but the title's wrong. He said, because by its very nature, if it's impossible, you can't achieve it. Uh, and, and what I said to him um, was, actually, it was a wonderful quote um, that I heard, and that was that it's only impossible until it's been achieved. And I think that's really true, is that often what we do is we set boundaries. Individually, we set our own boundaries of what we think we can achieve. And then outside of that, I think our, our environment sets boundaries. And actually, society sets boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, a classic example of that is, is someone like Roger Bannister's Four Minute Mile. Mm-hmm. At the time, the greatest runners on the planet were trying to break the four-minute mile. And, and in order to explain why they couldn't, the, the, the world's leading scientists and medics, people like me, said that if a man ran below four minutes for a mile, they would die. And that's what people believed. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the, the construct then becomes that actually it is impossible. Nobody can ever do it. And then, of course, Roger Bannister on a dreary evening on Ifley Road track in Oxford with fantastic pacemaking. Uh, and pace as a team that, that supported him in that broke the four minute mile. Do you think that's just because he didn't believe in the restriction? I think in part is that. I think what, what he also did was that he surrounded himself with the right team. So what he did is he took the right approach. I think I, 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 there's a sort of tagline that I talk about an awful lot and that is that success is not a chance event. It doesn't just happen. You don't just rock up to Italy Road and run sub four minutes for a mile. You know, everything was right for that. He had the perfect storm. And that perfect storm was about him as an individual, but also about his training, about the way in which he looked after his health during that training, about having the right team around him and having the right pacers who would take him through the, the 200 and 400 markers at exactly the right point. Will you talk us through some of the methodology in Achieve the Impossible? Because I guess you apply it to your celebrity clients who've never done anything like heavily exercise-wise or endurance-aimed. Yep. Uh, 
and then you help them to achieve these massive fees. So what's the methodology that I guess we could all learn from? Well, I think, you know, I think the starting point is actually to commit. I think invariably for people is that there are dreams that people have uh, and they, they get to the point where they think they can't be achieved, but they've never actually entered They've never actually crossed the line. And you know, if, if it is a big physical challenge, never actually entered the event. And so therefore, of course, you're never going to achieve it. And so I think the first thing to do is actually just cross the line. Commit to actually going She's saying, for it. I want to do this, and I'm going to do it. And actually, I'm going to do it. And you sign up yeah. or do something in reality. Well, whatever it is, yeah, you signed up. I, I think alongside that, I always say to people, look, tell as many people as you can. Get it out there. So they hold you to account. Absolutely right. <laughs> because actually it's amazing how with friends and family that every time you meet them, they say, oh, how's it going? You said you were doing that. And so what you can't do is you can't Another escape fraud. from it. Yeah. And that actually creates quite a nice motivation because then people are engaged in what you're trying to do. And I guess that that, that points towards the team because having, having sort of committed to it, what you've then got to do is create a team around you that can deliver it. Um, because it, nothing great is achieved alone. And this idea that somehow we have these, you know, the, the world's greatest explorers have got an incredible team who sit behind them. You may not see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and invariably in life, if you look at Olympic athletes, what you see is the end product. You see them stood on the rostrum at the Olympic Games. What you don't see is the, the, the hours, weeks, months, years of preparation with an incredible team behind them. So make sure that you, you actually bring that team together who are going to support you in that journey. And then, and then critically, it's actually about planning it. And I think it's the one area where people make the biggest mistake is that they actually somehow think that they'll just, they'll somehow via osmosis move to the right point. But you won't. Planning is absolutely crucial. And I think actually making sure that you document that planning, uh, making sure you use the team to support how you plan it, and not only setting that big long-term goal, dissect that down into short and medium-term goals. So that what you are doing is you're creating effectively you're creating flags along the way of whether you are on track if you're not on track how can we change it and move Mm -hmm. on to track Um, and also you can celebrate success in doing that so your top tips would be commit get a good team and plan yep to achieve the impossible there you go everybody you can you can achieve the impossible do you think we should set ourselves goals big goals just because it's psychologically good for us definitely I think, how, how is it so good for us? <laughs> well, I think, do, we, do we all need a New Year's resolution? An yeah. exercise-based one? I think to some extent we, we, we all need purpose. Yeah. And I think that's the point. It's actually, you know, I spend a lot of time obviously with an elite sport, but, you know, from a personal experience, I, I look at, at, at people who retire. So I looked at my dad who retired. I look at athletes who retire. And I think the one thing that they lose when they move away from that very structured environment where they have an identity... Uh, where, the, where they have a structure for daily living and they have a purpose fundamentally for getting up in the morning. Uh, it, when you've got that, that actually drives the, the belief that you can achieve something, the commitment and therefore the motivation which then follows that. And I think one of the big things for people is often they don't have, they don't have that structure around them, they don't have a purpose. It's like going to the gym and just getting on the treadmill for some nebulous reason. It's, mm. It just doesn't work. It'll work for a short while. But actually what you have to do is you have to set goals. Uh, and those goals create purpose. And, and making sure that you set the goals appropriately. So I mean, I, I, as do many others, use this smart approach. But these ideas of specific and measurable and achievable and timely and those type of things are really important. Because what it does, it creates a, a purpose, a reason for being. And if you've got that, then all of a sudden it becomes so that is much this easier. So you tracking your performance and building on it? 
Yeah, and, 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 and so, so what you are doing is you're always, you've always got a goal that you're going for. Now, obviously, you've got, you may have this big long-term goal, which mm. is 12 months' time. But, the, but for me, I actually set, for, for my clients, is I set a goal for every single session. So when they go to do a session, they know what they're trying to achieve in that mm. session. So can you talk us through how you begin with somebody like Davina? She wasn't an athlete. Or David. Yeah. He impressed you the most. Yeah, well, you know, Davina. Davina. I mean, if you take Davina, because obviously it's a, a triathlon, so it's three events, makes it that little bit more complex. Yeah. Um, to some extent, what, I, what one of the initial things I do is profile people. So what, what you do is you look at what what are the determinants of performance, what's required to, to perform this. So for Davina, for example, you have to be able to run, swim, and cycle to complete a triathlon. Could she do all three? And she couldn't swim. Well, she could swim. You know, she could swim on holiday. Uh, and, that, and that's very different to cold, open water, deep, open water. So what time frame did you have from the, the beginning? Short. What, like a year? Is a year short? No, 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 quirky. I mean, these guys invariably are, are sort of eight to 12 weeks. What? Yeah. She only swam on holiday and in 12 weeks you got a swimming... Two and a half thousand metres across, across Windermere. It's a tough gig. <laughs> You've got to tell us how you did this. So like how many days a week? Because she, she's, she's got a family, she had a job yeah. as well. And that, that comes down to time management. See, I remember reading about this at the time, but I never quite uh, allowed myself to let the details sink in. You just hear about a celebrity doing something amazing, and you think, oh, wow, God, that must have been tough. Oh, good on them, and they raise all this money. And then you move on. But now I'm talking to you, how in 12 weeks? <laughs> how in 12 weeks did that happen? Well, so, so what you then do is you then look at swimming. and um, So what, what I do is I dissect that into its determinants. Um, and uh, so, for, for example, with Davina, she could swim 25 metres. And, you know, and would have to recover before going again. Uh, and that's obviously in a nice, warm, shallow pool with good visibility. Um, I remember the first time I took her op- open water swimming, and she'll regale this story, but it took us about three hours to get her into the water because the fear of open water is, I mean, it's real for an awful the, lot of people. I think the temperature would be a major factor. Temperature, incredible, <laughs> what a difference that makes. And, and even with wetsuits, people say, well, should we, you know, they no, wear a wetsuit. So well, it's called a wetsuit for a reason. You actually get wet inside with the cold water. <laughs> but it is, you know, it, so it's dissecting it and looking at what are the determinants to perform. And then what, by looking at those, what you then look at is you profile the individual against those determinants. So where are their strengths, where are their weaknesses? Mm-hmm. And so the training then has to focus on the weaknesses whilst maintaining the strengths. And what you're trying to do is trying to bring everything up together. Uh, now, for something like swimming, it's highly technical, incredibly technical, and, and economy makes a big difference. Uh, and we all know that. So people who, who aren't great swimmers know that you do a mm. length and you're so out of puff, you can't actually continue so on. So on a typical week, how many hours is she in a pool? And what's she doing in the pool? So because that was our weekest event, we focused on that very heavily in the, in the early days. And, and so she was five five times a week swimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you've got to add on top of that the run and the cycle. Um, you then add on things like time of year. So actually on, on road in winter in the UK is not a pleasant place to and be. And are you e- each week setting her to go further or faster? Yeah, so, so um, all of it's targeted. So it's very, it, it, effectively it's a bespoke tailored program for her, which targets the weaknesses, maintains the strength, but also then has a progressive overload built into it mm. so that she's going, for that particular challenge, she's going longer and longer. But with the progressive overload, by the time she gets to the end of 12 weeks, surely she's exhausted. <laughs> so she's training five days. Did she have, did she have two, two oh, rest so she, days? She, she, or was, she, that she was training about six days a week. So she had one rest day a week. 
On average, yeah. Wasn't she just exhausted? She was pretty By the tired, time yeah. the actual event came round. <laughs> and how do you avoid that with your with your athletes as well? Because you work with some high profile athletes. Yeah. Anthony Joshua. Yeah. James Cracknell. Yeah. So what what are you doing with them? Are you consulting with them about their training plans? Yeah, for sure. And and I think you know what what I think the one thing to remember is it's the, I mean, it's a whole package. It's actually a lifestyle package, mm-hmm. is what you're pulling together. And, 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 you know, and the key is that what you're trying to design is everything, not just the session itself, it's what you do before the session, and it's what you do after the session. So it's, it's you know, and, and you know, what you do ranges from what you eat, what you drink, what skincare products you mm-hmm. use, all the way through to not only what you're doing during the session, but then after the session, how can you accelerate recovery? How can you optimize that recovery? Talk to us about recovery, because both of your celebrities and your athletes they must be in a constant state of inflammation with all their training. How do you get them out of it and able to perform optimally? Fast? The simple answer to that is you don't, because that's part of the adaptive process. I think what we have done, interestingly enough, within my time, I mean, I've spent three decades in sport and exercise science, and we've gone through the the idea that what we should be doing is dampening down inflammation as much as we possibly can, because it's a really bad thing. Mm. And then, of course, what then t- turns out as personally I thought at the time is that by dampening down that inflammatory process what you are doing is you are blunting the adaptive response and so you know back in the the 90s we would put everybody into an ice bath immediately after training to try and reduce the inflammation within the muscle because we want to reduce muscle damage but of course that muscle damage is part of the adaptive response because in response to that we then get regrowth of muscle we get increase in strength we get hypertrophy all of those things which is what we want if you intervene on that, what you do is you blunt, you stop that cascade, and so therefore you reduce adaptation. Mm-hmm. So in essence, some of these things that we've sort of in common parlance we've said are bad things are actually really important things. But what we don't want is we don't want excessive amounts of them. So, but that, that to some extent, actually comes down to, to the programming. And it's making sure you get the, the program right, you get the training right, that you've got the right session on the right day trying to achieve the right goal. One thing that really put me off cardio, yeah. and it's the reason I do mainly weights now, was that I just didn't want to be in a chronic state of elevated cortisol. And I thought that might age me faster, make me tired, make me more stressed, make me less able to handle a stressful day job. Is that true? No. Okay. <laughs> There's a simple answer to it. Uh, and now is the answer to that. I mean, you know, what exercise, e- exercise is a potent stimulus for inflammation, reactive oxygen species, etc., etc., etc. I mean, it's a very potent physiological stimulus um, but what in response to that what we do is we adapt so so actually our antioxidant defense system improves as we as we effectively what we are doing is we're challenging it and in that challenge what it does is it adapts to better cope with it we're toughening ourselves up yeah to some extent i mean and, and that, that's what it is but also add on top of that in terms of you know what you're talking about there critically we have to remember is that the exercise we know that exercise improves mental and emotional health. Mm-hmm. And actually, exercise is a wonderful stress buster. So far from it being an increase in stress, yes, it's a physiologic stress, but what it does do is it counterbalances some of these other stressors in life. And that, that to some extent, is what you know, my job is, is that what, what we have is we have this, this very tight balance between stress and recovery. Yeah. Uh, and... and the stressors are, are, are multiple. So with celebrities, it's always an interesting one because it is about busy schedule, it's about filming. Uh, add on top of that, for 
Davina and David and John, you know, it's a family. Um, it's about paying the bills, it's the mortgage, it's the social profile, it's, and then the list goes on. And then what I do is I add on massive physiologic stress on top of that. Can you give us some examples of the recovery methods that you use? Yeah. So, I mean... It, 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 With your clients? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of, you can compartmentalise it to some extent. Actually, one is in session. Uh, so what you are doing, and, and there's a, a massive debate that goes on within the literature uh, and within the scientific community about cool down. Um, I'm a big supporter. Um, I think cool down is really, really important. Um, and I think to some extent the way to think about it is that cool down is part of the warm up for the next session. So what would your cool down be? So, a little interval run? Well, the, it depends on what the session is really. But to some extent what you are doing is within, within a session, invariably you're getting a crescendo of intensity, a crescendo of stress. And then post-session, what you're doing is you're just allowing that to drop back down mm -hmm. and you're trying to accelerate that. So you're removing metabolites that you've produced uh, within the muscle itself. You do that by, by maintaining blood flow. So that means that you've, you've got to maintain heart rate and cardiac output. So what would you do? What would you do? So it'd be, it'd be a pro much like the session is an, a, a crescendo to, to, to maximum, if that's what we're doing in the session, the, the cool down is actually moving us back to base again. So it's bringing us back down to resting levels. Now, very difficult to do because metabolic rate remains elevated for quite some period of time post-exercise. But you are just effectively slowing down, uh, usually doing the same type of activity. It doesn't have to be the same activity. But the reason why we use the same type is because if you're swimming, uh, what you've done is you've created a huge burden of metabolites within the arms and so therefore you need to so talking in real terms you'd get them to do probably a similar exercise to what they've just been doing but yep. at a more relaxed easy, pace yep, yep. slower pace uh, and, and to some extent you can there are various markers but I, always, I like heart rate because heart rate is a global measure of, of stress uh, and what you, if, if you take a look at heart rate what you're trying to do is bring heart rate back down again what about recovery once they get home? So then, then you've got to think about what, what you're trying to do is support what has happened. So actually, even more acute than that is, is things that we can do as part of that cool-down process. So things like skincare products now that are being developed, Bullet & Bone is a great example of that, is that what, what you see with that is that what it does is it enables us to both physically but also psychologically cool down as part of that process. So, what, so this is a... For full transparency, everybody, Greg is an ambassador for Bullet and Bone. And this is a brand of topicals that promote recovery. Yeah. Designed to promote recovery. Yeah, actually, across the spectrum, so pre pre exercise, during exercise, and and post exercise in terms of recovery. And, and I think you know part of that actually is about. It, interesting enough, if you've got a shower, if you have a shower gel, you will have a shower. Having a shower is quite important as part of that recovery process physically and mentally. Other than having a shower, are there any specific treatments or therapies that you abide by? Have you ever had a go at hyperbaric oxygen therapy or yeah. cryotherapy? Yeah. Do you think they work? No. No? I'm what just not sure about the... I mean, I, so let, I mean, let's take cryotherapy, for example. So what, what is cryotherapy? It's, it's temperature reduction. Um, and that ranges from icing or cold showers, for example, or cold baths, all the way through to incredibly expensive fundamentally um, difficult cryo-chamber environments. Um, and what they're trying to do is reduce inflammation. And we've already said, actually, what we want to do is we don't want to blunt that inflammation. We want that inflammation because it's part of the adaptive process. So why we would, why would post-call doesn't make any sense. What we want is we want damage because that damage leads to adaptation. Um, I think what's much more important to us, what we want to do is we actually want to support that, that 
repair process from it. And that repair process is, is governed, to some extent, governed by nutrition. So certainly one of the things, one of the key areas that I look at is actually what we take in post-exercise. So when it comes to rehydrating, when it comes to protein uh, ingestion post-exercise, and then when it comes to refueling, so things like carbohydrates depend on what the session has been. But, that, but they are very tailored nutritional approaches. I think that what we, I run very much this idea of periodized nutrition is what we do is we actually we feed to deliver an outcome. So if the session is very high intensity, then carbohydrates pre-session are important. If it's a prolonged low intensity session, actually fat metabolism is important. So it's being so what specific. What then? Still carbs? No, well, no is the answer to that. And again, it depends what you're trying to get from the session. So if, if what you're trying to do, for example, if what you're trying to do is weight manage if you're trying to lose weight then you take nothing uh, it, what you don't need to do is add calories uh, a calorie burden there's so, a big movement and a lot of growth in low carb or carb, high fasting yeah. carnival diet I've, I've had a carnival guest on mm-hmm. um, but equally I've had um, vegan world record breaking ultra marathon yeah. um, we're nearing <laughs> the end of the show and I really want to cover your work at the Centre for Health and Human Performance yep. because you have such a broad spectrum of people who see you there from athletes to people with cancer. Yep. So how are you how are you adopting an individualised approach there? What kinds of things are you doing with people who come and see you? Well, I mean, that, that, I mean, therein lies the issue, actually. It's, it's an interesting one because I think what, what we often find with... And let's call them fad diets, um, right. which because you know to some extent that's what they are. Is that the, the problem when you've got something that becomes popular or popularist uh, is that people assume that, that it works for everybody. Now you're absolutely right. There are vegan ultramarathon world record holders, but equally there are carbohydrate eating ultramarathon world record holders. <laughs> and, and what it comes down to is the fact that actually what you do is you you tailor it to the individual. And, and that's something we spend an awful lot of time on at the Centre of Health and Human Performance. So, for example, what we are doing is we're taking what their goal is and also what the stressor is. So cancer, for example, mm. you know, what are the key issues around that? I mean, there are a whole host of key issues, but with chemotherapy, you get something called cancer kykexia. So what, 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 what chemotherapy does is it reduces muscle mass dramatically. So uh, does that make a difference? It makes a massive difference because it causes muscle pain, so you get myalgia, but it also changes stability, mobility, functional mm-hmm. capacity. So some of the things that we work on very hard with cancer patients is optimizing protein intake, the right type of protein which targets muscle regeneration, combined with strength training to try and reduce that kykexia response to chemotherapy. And in some instances, what we can do is actually reverse it. So it's understanding the individual, understanding what what stress is being placed upon them uh, and so the other end of that spectrum would be the athlete and that, that's understanding what the specific session is what are we trying to achieve in just that one session what what are we trying to achieve in terms of the adaptation but also in terms of where we want the athlete to, is it a low intensity moderate intensity high intensity what do we need for that and so tailoring that nutritional approach is actually about the individual it's not about what is popularist or what we th- think sort of generally works it's about tailoring it and making it right for the individual. And that's when you get optimum performance. What is it that you want to achieve next? We've talked a lot about your celebrities and your clients. <laughs> What's happening with you now? I, 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 I mean, next year I'm doing this crazy triathlon called the Norseman. 
I think they're all crazy. <laughs> they they are a bit crazy, yeah. But this one sounds particularly yeah. crazy, isn't it? I mean, it? they call it the toughest triathlon on the planet. Um, and uh, they, they love these labels. But to be fair, it is, it is a bit crazy. Um, I like to challenge myself. I think what you should do is lead by example in life. I think it's very easy to sit in your comfy chair in your office and tell other people what to do. Um, and I think, so I like to challenge myself. And so, I, you know, it's on the channel. I've done the Marathon de Saab, lots of sort of different events since retiring from being an Did athlete. Did you swim from Europe to Africa? Yeah, so Gibraltar Straits from Europe to Africa, um, the Thames. I mean, lots of different things. So, it, you know, mm. and, and I think they're really important because to some extent it's also testing the hypotheses that I like to expel. Uh, you don't just talk the talk. No, is what you've got to walk the walk as well. Yeah. Um, one last question that's really fascinating to me. Through all your work with human performance and at the Centre for Health and Human Performance with all the different people you've seen, all the athletes you've worked with, and I know that with science we're constantly learning, we're always discovering new things, and you seem to be very open-minded to that because you've changed your opinion on different things over time. What's the one thing that's impressed you the most or stunned you the most or even fascinated you the most that you've learned it during your career about human performance it could be as simple as everyone has to eat a balanced diet or it could be something a little bit more niche it probably runs that same spectrum so two things one is that i think what we should always do is challenge dogma is that there, there is a commonly held belief that something happens and, and we just we accept that so some of my early work was actually looking at, at the heart one of the things that if you ever read a textbook you know up until the 90s uh, it would say the heart doesn't fatigue uh, and I remember doing sessions thinking it must fatigue because <laughs> I'm fatiguing and so we did a whole series of, of, uh, of research papers looking at the heart and whether it actually fatigues or not uh, and we demonstrated that it does fatigue uh, and we, we showed elevations in things like cardiac troponins uh, and we showed a, a, a diastolic dysfunction a reduction in function of the heart which is against the dogma so I think to some extent as an individual what we should always do is challenge dogma don't just believe it don't believe the headlines spend the time to actually take a look at it and I think the, the other thing that I've learned as I've gone through and Einstein for me coined it beautifully and that is that genius is the ability to explain the complex in simple terms and, and to that end it's very easy to sound very intelligent uh, and bamboozle people but I think the genius is the ability to take what is incredibly complex and make it understandable by all and that's something I challenge myself to do regularly I think the viewers will agree you've done that oh, today. Greg <laughs> White, thank you. Where can people find you? What's your uh, website address and social media handles? So a couple of websites, gregwhite.com, uh, or I've actually got a website called thewhiteanswer.com where I actually sort of interface and answer questions that people have in, in this area. And then on social media, Twitter at GPWhite uh, or ProfGregW on Instagram. Brilliant, thank you. And if you've watched this on YouTube, don't forget to go and subscribe to the Health Hackers channel. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, you can subscribe there too and leave us a nice review if you're in a good mood. Bye bye. <laughs>